Well, tonight we're going to preach a message that is uh, sort of connected to the throne room messages that we've been preaching. It's not really about a throne room experience, as it were, but it answers a question that I had as I studied in the Word of God. And I believe it may answer a question that you may have about this uh, topic as well. Exodus chapter number 20. And let's begin reading in verse number 22. We're just going to read three verses here. Exodus chapter number 20. Let's start in verse number 22. The Word of God says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. Let's read that last phrase again, then we'll pray. The Lord says to Moses, In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the service that we had this morning, the way that you wonderfully helped us. Thank you for the wonderful fellowship and congregational singing and special singing tonight. Lord, now we're asking that you would meet with us again. You've recorded your name in this place. We ask, Lord, that you'd meet with us. You've recorded your name in us, and so we ask that you'd meet with us. Lord, we just seek your presence and your power this evening. Ask that you'd be glorified and lifted up high and holy before us. Lord, that we would see you for who you are. Only then will we see us for who we are. We'll be sure to give you the glory for it. We love you tonight, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we've read there in Exodus chapter number 20, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I'm a little bit out of my element tonight. Uh, we're going to be in several portions of Scripture, and I'm not normally that type of a preacher. I, I, I'm normally what you might call an expository preacher. You say, what does that mean? It means you like to get in a passage and stay there. Amen. But we're going to read in several passages of Scripture tonight. But I titled the message this evening, The Earthly Throne Room. The question that I had as I studied through all these throne rooms, and I found this out, as you begin to study them, there's more than you'd think there is. But as I began to study them, the question I had was this. We have a God that longs for fellowship with His people. And yet, what amounts to only a handful of times in Scripture does the throne room of God visit this earth. There are times when the glory of the Lord appears, but the throne room does not appear. In fact, we're going to read here in just a moment, but many of you are familiar with this term, what some people would call the Shekinah glory of God. When God would come and visit His people in the appearance of a cloud with a brightness round about it. But the thing that puzzled me was this. Why is there a cloud? Why is there glory? Why is there the presence of God? And yet so many times you don't find wheels, you don't find cherubims, you don't find thunder, you don't find lightning. What is it that's missing 
from these scenes that they are altered so drastically from what we've seen in Isaiah and Revelation and Ezekiel and this morning in Exodus 24. The thing that I came to realize is this. The throne room did not come down, though the glory did. And the throne room did not come down because the Lord had a throne room on this earth. Let me say this, that God wants to meet with us so bad that He made a place to meet with us. Aren't you thankful we've got a God that wants to meet with us so bad that He'd make a place to meet with us? Let me say that the local church functions a lot of things. I mean, it does. You really get to studying all the things, that, all the needs that the local church meets and fulfills. It would astound you. But one of the chief reasons that the Lord loved the church and gave Himself for it was so that there'd be a meeting place with humanity, with those that are saved. And I still believe that the church is the meeting place where we can meet with God. If our hearts are where they need to be, I believe in corporate worship. You say, what do you mean by corporate worship? You mean these churches sponsored by Starbucks? No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is God's people gathering together and worshiping together. I still believe in that. I don't believe we ought to small group the local church away. Do you? I got no problem with Bible studies. We work very hard to have a Bible study every Monday night through this period of time in the year. I'm not against, I'm not against folks meeting together in fellowship. And don't misunderstand me when I say that. But let me just say that nothing replaces the local church. There's a place and the Lord meets with us. And I'm thankful that He does meet with us in the way that He does. In Exodus chapter number 20, we have what I believe to be a principle that God gives that we're going to follow through Scripture. We read over it twice, but I'll read it again there in verse number 24. The Lord makes this promise to Moses. Now, I want you to get the picture in your mind, if you can do that. Here Moses is. He is on the mountain with God. The throne room, as we preach this morning, has sat down on Sinai. On this occasion, there is lightning. There are thunderings. There is the voice as of a trumpet. Uh, there is fire on the mountain, so to speak. Don't get excited. That's not what the old bluegrass song's about. But there is fire on the mountain. The smoke is arising. Here God is in the full glory of His presence and the majesty of His throne room. And He says this to Moses. He says, I want you to listen, Moses. This is how you build an altar. This is how you sacrifice for me. And anywhere where I record my name, Moses, I'll meet with you there. It's kind of like the Lord saying, Moses, I'm not going to do this every time. Moses, I'm not going to pick up my throne room and sit down on this mountain every time, but there is a way that you can meet with me. That way is through the altar. That way is through the burnt offering and the peace offering. By the way, we talked about this a little bit, me and Brother Brandon did. The, the, only, the reason that it says burnt offerings and peace offerings is the Levitical law has not been instituted yet. And so every single sacrifice in the Old Testament basically falls into one of two categories. It's either a burnt offering because somebody's sin, or it's a peace offering because somebody wants to worship. And all the Old Testament offerings and sacrifices 
fall within those categories. Sometimes it's a little bit of both. Sometimes it's holy one. Sometimes it's holy the other. But they, they fall into these basic two categories. The burnt offering for those that have sinned and need to come into the presence of God for forgiveness and those that have not sinned, or at least they are not coming because they have sinned. There's no uh, overwhelming or, or overriding uh, sin in their life. They've confessed their sin, but they want to come in before the presence of God to worship Him. And they stand as sin-fallen man, incomplete to worship. It's sort of like the New Testament when the Bible talks about they that worship the Lord must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But the natural man, the carnal man, he uh, his father is the devil. He knows nothing of that which is truthful, nothing of that which is right. He is spiritually dead. Listen to me now. When you're awakened in Christ Jesus, your carnal man does not disappear. There's lots of folks that they don't worship uh, the Lord in spirit and in truth. They worship the Lord in deadness and hypocrisy. That's how the old man worships. And so, just as the Old Testament believer, when he came to worship before the Lord, uh, an offering, a sacrifice had to be given so that he could say, Lord, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm not worthy to worship you. But I have slain this animal which was representative of someone that was worthy. And I come in his stead to worship before your presence. The Lord says, Moses, there's a way you can meet with me, and this is how. And he says, everywhere where I record my name, he said, that's a place that I'll meet with you. And I want us to look tonight at four places that the Lord has recorded His name, four places that we see the glory of the Lord, not the throne room, but the glory of the Lord descending throughout the Word of God. I want you to turn with me to chapter 25 of the book of Exodus. Chapter number 25. Where's the first place that the Lord says He'll meet? And by the way, do you know that all the way from uh, this chapter that we are reading uh, in the book of Exodus, all the way down to the book of Ezekiel, you don't see the throne room anywhere except for in the life of Elijah. Elijah is running from God, and as he is running from God, he's not heading towards the throne room. But he sort of has an experience like Ezekiel has. He goes to Sinai. He wants to go to the last place that the throne room was spotted, the last place that God came and sat down on the mountain in a miraculous way. And he goes and hides in a cave, and the throne room comes looking for him. But by and large, you don't see the throne room after Sinai and before Ezekiel. And this is why. Look at verse number 9 of chapter number 25. The Lord, again, is speaking to Moses. And He says this, According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. And they shall make an ark of shittim wood, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold round about. Thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in the one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark. 
that the ark may be born with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. Thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. Thou shalt make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. Thou shalt put the mercy seat above the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Now you say, preacher, why did we read all that? What was the purpose? Well, God's giving to Moses the instructions for the ark and for the mercy seat. And then he says something very interesting, verse 22. He says, and there I will meet with thee. And I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. We see the first place that the Lord creates an earthly throne room, a place on earth to meet with His people, is in the tabernacle. Did the Lord meet with His people there? Well, you tell me. Turn over to chapter 40 of the book of Exodus, chapter number 40. And I want you to see what the Bible says. Exodus chapter number 40. So the tabernacle is the first place. Now, most of us know what the tabernacle is. And by the way, I found something interesting as I read in the Word of God. Uh, I was reading what the uh, Word of God says. The Hebrew writer says that there were two tabernacles. Because he calls the holy place a tabernacle, and then he calls the holy of holies a tabernacle. And so there's two places. And and, we'll get that here in a moment. You just stick with me. Exodus chapter 40. Look at verse number 32. The Bible says this, When they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Lord tells Moses, I want you to build me a tabernacle. Within that tabernacle, I want you to build me an ark. And upon that ark, I want you to place the mercy seat. Moses, there and there alone will I meet with you. There and there alone can we talk over man sin. There and there alone can we deal with the problems of humanity. There and there alone will I give my commandments for this traveling people. And so Moses uh, sets about the work. He commissions those whom the Lord has commanded uh, to do the work. He gathers the materials. And many, many, I'm sure, weeks passed by as they worked on this to get it just exactly like it ought to be. Then the day comes where the Lord, where Moses rears up the tabernacle. They set the tent up. Everything things in its place. All of the furniture is situated how it ought to be. They, uh, The priests and Moses go and they wash themselves as the Lord has commanded. And then the glory of the Lord descends upon that place. And God blesses it with His presence. He sanctions it with His glory. Can I say this? There's lots of things that the Lord sanctions with His glory. It's a pretty important thing when the Lord gives His stamp of approval. 
I, I, I believe Brother Charlie was saying to me this morning, he said, we were talking about the service this morning. Well, just about every service. I mean, it, the Lord's just been good to us. And we were talking about it. And he said, I'll tell you, the Lord's in this place. I agree with him. Amen? I don't, I don't think he's here because of me. I don't think he's here just because of you. But I do believe that the Lord is here in this place. We ought not take it lightly when the Lord sanctions a place with His glory and with His presence. And so the Lord sits down on the tabernacle. He has created a throne room for Himself. I tell you, time would fail me to preach all of it, but can I say a few words about it? Can I say that it was a divine throne room? The Bible, you'd be amazed how many times that gold is mentioned in the building of the tabernacle. Gold speaks of divinity, purity, and royalty. And the Lord said, I want my throne room to be a gold throne room. He says, I want the place where I rest my presence to be a golden place. You say, why is that, preacher? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but let me just say this. I think the Lord wanted the decor to match. Because when he sat down in the throne room, the Bible says that there was a fire within him as the color of amber. You say, preacher, that's silly. No, 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 don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the Lord just wanted. I'm saying uh, that the reason gold is valued the way it is, that beautiful luster, what do you think that's modeled after? I mean, hey, the first place that gold is found, it's found in the street in the New Jerusalem. It's found in the fire that uh, glows out from the presence of God. And the most precious thing that man can think to lay his hands on is just a poor man's image of what God's glory looks like. And so he says, I want it to be gold. You say, what, uh, what about the rest of it? What else does it teach us? It teaches us that the throne room was a bloody place. Because once a year, the high priest would come with the sacrifice Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The bullock had been slain, uh, or the goat had been slain. The scapegoat had been sent away, and he would come, and he would place the blood upon the mercy seat. And the Lord says, I'll meet with you over the blood. Have you ever stopped and thought about what the book of Isaiah says? When it, the, the Lord says this, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Come, let us reason together. You know what the Lord's saying? He's saying, we have something to talk about. There's been a sacrifice that's been given. There's been a debt. You've owed that debt, but now that debt has been paid. Now you can go free as a result of, come to where I'm at. Let's reason together over what has taken place. The mercy seat was sort of a reasoning place. It was a place where man could go and have his sins dealt with by God. And the throne room is no different Today, then notice a unique characteristic. This is different from the other throne rooms. There you are in Exodus chapter 40. I guess you are. There you are in Exodus chapter 40. I want you to notice what it says. Verse 36 says this. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their, what's this next word, all their journey. The tabernacle was the throne room for a sojourning people. The Lord doesn't have them build a permanent house. He has them build a tent that can be taken down and reared again. He doesn't have them build a throne room uh, that uh, is affixed to a place on the earth because He knows His people are going to be moving. 
And he knows that just as Moses had already made it clear. By the way, again, remember, Moses is the federal head of the nation of Israel. And the Lord says to the Lord says to Moses, you've got to lead these people. You've got to take care of these people. You've got to lead these people out. You've got to watch over these people. Moses gets to a place where he gets frustrated. You remember, you've read the chapters. I believe it's chapter number 31 or 32, 33, where Moses sees the backside of God. And he says this. He says, if thy presence go not up, then we will not go up. And the Lord says, I like that kind of devotion Moses, I'll oblige you. I'll give you a throne room that'll go where you go. Boy, what an encouragement. And the Lord made good on that promise, didn't He? You get down to the book of Ezekiel, and the temple has been destroyed. And the nation of Israel lies in, in smoke and ashes. And Ezekiel, here he is, wandering as a captive through the wilderness, being taken away by the river Kabar, and his whole life has imploded in on him. And the Lord brings the throne room to where he, he says, Ezekiel, if you've got to go, I'm going to go with you. What a blessing it is to know, hey, wherever we go, he's going to go with us. Whatever we go through, he's going to go through with Let me tell you something, that's one of the most important truths in the Christian walk. And we need to get a hold of it. There's nothing, you've, there's nothing you're going to go through but what the Lord's already sitting on the other side of it, having been through it. There's nothing that you're going to go through but what God has already been through. Let, let's get this. The, the book of Isaiah says He's the Lord God that inhabiteth eternity. Sometimes we have the idea that God just has that magical uh, remote control and He can fast forward, and He can rewind, He can go here, He can go there. Brother, He's not even in the TV set. I mean, He's not even in time. He's outside of time. He inhabiteth time. Everything, everywhere is in His immediate presence. You say, preacher, I don't know if we can get through it. Preacher, I don't know if we can make it. Preacher, I don't know what's going to happen. Don't you realize your God is already there on the other side of it waiting for you? He's already there. His presence for a sojourning people. Turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter number 7. Second Chronicles chapter number 7. i got a bunch of marks here in my Bible to tell me where to go, amen, so I'll get there quicker than you. Second Chronicles chapter number 7. We find a second place that the Lord writes His name and sanctions with His presence. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Many years have passed. Now they are no longer the theocratic society they had once been. They said, we want a king. And the Lord says, okay, if you want a king, I'll give you a king, I'll give you Saul. Saul was a wicked king. And uh, because of that, the Lord took the throne away and He gave it to a man after his own heart by the name of David. David made a lot of mistakes in his life and he got forgiveness for him. But do you know just because you get forgiveness, that don't mean there's not consequences? David said, I, I want to build a house for your name, Lord. And by the way, you'll find he always said that. He didn't say, I want to build a house for you. He said, I want to build a house for your name. You know why? Listen now, because it's not a memorial for people to gander at. It's a meeting house for people to gather at. And so he doesn't just want to build a place, because he knows that if he'll build a place for the name of the Lord, the Lord said, wherever my name is, I'll be there. So he doesn't just say, hey, we want to build a memorial for you. He says, we want a meeting house where we can meet with God. The Lord won't let David do that. He's a man that has shed blood, not just the blood of battle, but the blood of hatred, the blood of violence, the blood of murder. So he says, you cannot do that, David. But he says, you have a son by the name of Solomon. And him I'll let build me 
a house. Second Chronicles chapter 7, look at verse number 11 with me. The Word of God says this, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord. Now, if you want to, you can take the time to read everything coming up to it. It's very interesting. It, it exhorts you and it edifies you. And it, it, it'd be well worth your time. But we don't have the time in this preaching service. So we're just going to read from here. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord. And in his own house he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. Now, most of us know this next verse. We quote it all the time. It says, If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain. For I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people, my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and my ears attempt unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Listen to what it says in a parallel account in 1 Kings 8.13. I, I like this. This stuck in my mind. Uh, Solomon says this. Verse 12 says, Then spake Solomon, The Lord said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. I have surely built thee an house to dwell in. Listen to this. A settled place for thee to abide in forever. We see the next place is the temple of the Old Testament. The temple, in most ways, mirrored the Old Testament tabernacle, but not in all ways. We find that uh, in, in the temple, we find the things that the Lord would have loved to have done if the children of Israel had been in Canaan, He now fulfills, or I, I like the way the Bible says it, prosperously affects them in a settled place. We see the tabernacle is for a sojourning people, but the temple is for a settled people. We find that Solomon's temple in many ways mirrors for us the glory of the millennial reign. It mirrors for us in many ways. And there are some differences between the millennial temple that the Lord chose Ezekiel and Solomon's temple. But in many ways, Solomon figures for us and pictures for us the Lord in His millennial reign seated upon His throne. And the temple that He builds in many ways mirrors that millennial temple. It is a settled place for God's people to go. A fixed point, or could we say it this way, an anchor point in the geography of their life. What happens? Well, turn back to Second Chronicles chapter 5. You may already be there uh, or right there close to it. But what does the Bible say happened? The Lord, er, Solomon finishes building the house of the Lord. The Lord says, I will meet you there. I will write my name there. Solomon says, I want you dwell in the thick darkness. But I wanted for there to be a settled place for you to abide in. And what happens? Look at chapter number 5. Let's begin reading. We'll read all of it. It's not very long. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated. And the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. 
Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Wherefore, all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast, which was in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the ark. And they brought up the ark and the tabernacle of the congregation, and all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. These did the priests and the Levites bring up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel that were assembled unto him before the ark sacrificed sheep and oxen, which could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, to the oracle of the house, into the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubims spread forth their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark, and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves of the ark, that the ends of the staves were seen from the ark before uh, the oracle, but they were not seen without. And there it is unto this day. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Heman, of Jejethon, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. It came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. God sanctions this settled place. You know, in a lot of ways, that's sort of how I see the local church. I understand there's differences. Don't misunderstand me. But we've had times like that. They're not all the time. Sometimes they're few and far between. I like it when we have times like that. When you've got all your T's crossed and your I's dotted, you've got everybody's where they need to be. Everybody's doing what they ought to be doing. People have gathered into the house. The instruments are ready. Everybody's ready to do their job. And then the Lord just does their job for them. And he shows up and fills the temple in a mighty way. Let me say we need that anchor point in our lives. We need that fixed and settled place. I'm glad that when I've got to sojourn, there's the presence to go with me. But I'm glad there's a settled place for me too when I ought not be sojourning. There is a place to come home to. Aren't you glad? There's a place to go to when you've messed up. There's a place. Isn't that what the Lord said about the temple? He said, if you've messed up, if you've turned your back on me, if you've sinned, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to chastise you. I'm going to send pestilence among you. I'm going to take the blessing away from you because you forfeited it. If you've messed up in life. But listen now, there's a settled place that you can look to. There's a house that you can pray towards. If you come into this place, grab hold of the horns of the altar and plead for the Lord God's blessings. He says, I'll hear. I'll turn. If you repent, I'll change things. I'll heal the land and I'll send you the blessing that you need. 
Boy, it's a blessing to know the Lord will go with me when I've got to go. But it's a blessing to know that there's a place for me to stay when I don't have to go. And there's a place for me to go when I should have stayed in Denton. God help us when we get to the place. And let me tell you something. There, people make mistakes. People mess up. You do and I do too. But God help us when we get to the place where the church ain't a place people can come home to after they've messed up. I mean, I understand. I know what it's like. I understand. It's easy to be that way. And by the way, the Word of God that says, Judge not that you be not judged, also says, For with what measure you mete out judgment, it shall be meted to you. When we judge scripturally, we're all right because we're going to be judged by the Word of God. Nothing wrong with that. I know how it is to get frustrated. I know how it is to get fed up with folks. I know how it is to sometimes look at them and, uh, and lose your compassion and tell them that they've made that bed. They can lie in it. They brought it upon themselves. But we ought never get to the place uh, because, listen, now there may come a day when you need someone to have compassion on you. We ought to always remember that the church is a place where people that have messed up can come home and get things right. We see a settled place. Turn with me to Matthew chapter number 17. Well, let's go out of the Old Testament for a minute. Matthew chapter number 17. We've seen in the tabernacle a sojourning presence of the Lord. We've seen in the temple a settled place or a presence for a settled people. But in Matthew chapter 17... We see a throne room for a sign-seeking people. The Bible says this, that the, that the Greeks seek after wisdom and the Jews require a sign. All through the Lord's ministry, they always talked about what the sign of His coming would be. How would they know? How could they tell? You know what the Lord said about the only sign for His first coming would be? He said the sign of the prophet Jonas. As Jonas was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, you say, it says whale? Yeah, read your Bible, it says whale. That doesn't bother me. Anybody with a little common sense that doesn't have a scientific degree can tell you that a whale ain't nothing but a big old fish. I know, we can talk about mammals, we can talk about, we can, we can have the scientific discussion, but I think sometimes God has a little more common sense than a lot of scientists, don't you? I, mean, I don't know about you, but if I see something big as a house with flippers and a tail and it's moving through the water, I don't think, well, look at that mammal. I think, boy, what a big fish swimming through the water. And so the Lord says, three days, three nights in the belly of the whale. So shall also the Son of Man be three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. And uh, people are always looking for a sign. What signs did the Lord give? Listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 17. Bible says, And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Oh, B.R. Lakin, you say he never tried to finance one. If he had, he sure wouldn't ask for three. Amen. While he yet spake, verse 5, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. 
And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. I'm very interested in a lot of things in this passage. And I'm going to be honest with you. This passage has always held a lot of mystery for me. Maybe it's because we don't really use the word transfigured in common everyday language. The word transfigured literally means to change the appearance of. It's not too difficult, is it? Trans and then figured. It's to change the appearance of. But what was it that happened on that day on the Mount of Transfiguration? Some have said that the Lord appeared in His glorified body. I think there may be some truth to that. Although I will say this, that he's not described that way when he's spoken about with his glorified body. Look at the passages that talk about his glorified body. You may find one, show it to me and prove me wrong. But to the best of my knowledge, I don't know of a single one where it talks about him glowing, where it talks about a brightness. No, I don't think it was necessarily that he was appearing in his glorified body that he would have after his resurrection. Some folks have tried to say that it was a moment in his ministry where the glory that was inside just came bursting forth. Couldn't be held any longer. But I don't necessarily find this to be so because I know and understand that though he was 100% God, he was also 100% man. Listen, now, he wasn't, he wasn't 100% God wrapped in a crunchy chocolate covering, amen, on the outside. He, he wasn't, I mean, he wasn't, he, he wasn't a Cadbury Jesus, amen. No, he was 100% God. He was 100% man. What happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, we can fuss about it later, but I'll tell you what I believe. And I believe the answer is found in a phrase in verse number 5, where the Word of God says, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. What better place? And by the way, you know what the Bible says? I like this. Of course, I like it all, but I like this. In John 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. Down in verse number 14, boy, we quote it all the time, but it says, And the Word was made flesh, and now this is interesting, the Bible says, And dwelt among us. That word dwelt has the idea of a tent, or dare I say it, a tabernacle. What the Word of God is saying, And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory... The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John was there on the mountain. What he's saying is uh, that the Word, the eternal Word, the, the Word that was God, the Word that still is God, was made flesh and it tabernacled itself among us. The same way in the Old Testament that the presence of God had a throne room and a tabernacle on this earth. In the ministry of Christ, there was still a throne room and a tabernacle upon this earth. But that tabernacle was not made with hands. That tabernacle was the blessed Son of God. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of the Lord descended in a bright cloud. God sat down upon His tabernacle and the brightness of His glory, the Hebrews writer said, and the express image of His person changed appearance when the glory of God sat down upon Him and the Lord's glory was made evident to us. Paul said, and we beheld His glory like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. 
For a sign-seeking people, the Lord said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. The Old Testament tabernacle pictured for us the Lord Jesus Christ. I wish I had time. And if, we may, if the Lord let us, we may do a whole series on the tabernacle sometime. But, but I wish I had time right now to explain to you how that the tabernacle pictured the Lord Jesus Christ. And it did picture the Lord Jesus Christ. From the humility of the badger skins that were outside of it, uh, to, uh, to the sockets of silver, silver is a picture of redemption, uh, to the golden and brazen frame, to the floor uh, that was golden uh, that laid underneath him. Uh, everything about the tab, the colors that were in the tabernacle, the furniture that was in the tabernacle, everything pointed to the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. John says the same way that that was the meat and house of God. Christ in His earthly ministry was the meat and house for us. What did the Lord say? Was His name recorded there? John chapter 8 verse 56 says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying there? That doesn't make a lot of grammatical sense. I mean, English teacher would have a fit over that. Before Abraham was, I am. But see, here's the thing. The I am he's talking about, that wasn't a state of being. That's a proper name. He's saying, I am that I am. I'm the one that spoke from Sinai. I'm the one that thundered. I'm the one that roared. I'm the one that sat down on the mountain. I'm the place where the Lord has recorded His name. Let me say this. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's not all about Him, we got no business meeting. We might as well lock the doors, sell it to the wire, divide the money and go home. If it's not all about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's always been about Him. It's still about Him. You say, what can we do about all these lost folks in this world. What can we do about these loved ones? What can we just point them to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the meeting place. That's where God will meet with mankind to reason together over His sin-fallen condition. You come into the tabernacle. You go to the foot of the cross. The Lord says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. He is the mediator and the meeting place. He is the point at which the sinner can receive grace and truth and forgiveness. He is what it's all about. And He'll always be what it's all about. In the New Covenant, there's still a meeting place. And that meeting place is the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, is He a sojourning meeting place? Well, He's a little of both. Because He said, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. But He's also the Ancient of Days. He, he, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So I'm glad to know that He'll go with me whatever I'm going through. But I'm glad that I know where to point a lost sinner to when they need to be saved. You say, oh, where do you point them, preacher? You point them to the foot of the cross. You point them to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you tell them, hey, God will reason with you there. God will meet with you there. And though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. What about today? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll try to hurry through this. I don't know if we will or not, but we'll try. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We see in the tabernacle the meeting place for a sojourning people. We see in the temple a meeting place for a settled people. We find at the transfiguration a meeting place for a sign-seeking people. 
But in 2 Corinthians chapter number 3, we find a meeting place for a saved people. Is there a place where the Lord's recorded His name in the New Testament? And if so, where is it? I understand that's the local church in many ways because He said where two or three are gathered together, what? In my name, there will I be. But I'm glad it's not confined to that truth. This is where some would label me a heretic. But I still find that my Bible says there's one body. One body, one spirit, one faith, one... There's one body. I understand that every single local church is a body. I'm aware of that. I understand that the Lord uh, does His work through local churches. I'm well aware of that. But let me say this. We don't have to be... Let me get this right. I want to say it right. Just because we grasp this truth don't mean we have to throw away the local church. And just because we love the local church doesn't mean we have to throw away this truth. There's a biblical balance in all things. Let me say that I'm thankful that my brethren that meet at the church down the road, they are my brethren. But I'm thankful that we still have a place for the local church. You see, I, I guess what I'm saying is this. I'm not a universal church person, though they'd love to call me that. But nor do I believe that people that go by the name Baptist with a capital B are the only ones going to be sitting down at the table. I believe in one body. But I also believe in the local church. And I believe that that's biblical too. Amen? Well, that was for free, but the rest going to cost you. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. You're in the right place. You're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be there in a moment. But listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. Verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19 says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25 says this. Paul's talking, and he says, Whereof I am made a minister, talking about the gospel, whereof I am made a minister, a dispensation of God, which is given to me for you, to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this ministry among of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You say, what's this mystery that, that Paul's talking The mystery is this, and the thing that Old Testament Jews could not see is this, that God would one day do away with the temple during the church age because He would tabernacle Himself within the life and body of believers, yea, even Gentile believers. The Old Testament saints could not see this. The Jews could not see this. He gave this truth to them. The book of Jeremiah, He said, there's coming a day, I'll write my law upon your hearts and upon your minds. But they just could not grasp hold of this truth that one day God's meeting place would not be in a tent called the tabernacle, would not be in a building called the temple, would not even be in the earthly person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it would be the temple of the the Holy Ghost, the individual that's been saved by God's grace. Paul echoes this truth in the chapter you're at, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I won't have time to read all of it, but I want to read beginning at verse number 6. 
Now, Paul's talking about the time when Moses was on the mount. You say, when was Moses on the mount? When we preached about it this morning. In fact, if you were to go on in chapter number 24, the Bible would tell you at the end of chapter 24 that Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, what it would be to spend 40 days in the throne room. Some of you say, if this series goes on two more weeks, we're going to be 40 days in the throne. But uh, he spent 40 days in the throne room. And when he comes down, his face is glowing and he must put a veil about his face because the children of Israel can't behold the glory that is upon him. That's a picture of what takes place in the life of the believer. Listen to what the Word of God says. Verse 6, "...who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament." The New Covenant. Not the covenant of Sinai, but the covenant of Calvary. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. The Old Testament law was given by the letter. It was written on tables of stone. God said, here's my law. This is what I want you to do. In the New Testament, I understand we have the Word of God. I understand in some senses it is a rule book. But can I say this? uh, That just having the Bible is not enough to make a man holy. It's got to be applied by the Spirit of God to our lives. There's plenty of people on a Bible. And they live, I mean, like the devil's moved right in with them. The Spirit of God has to take control of a man's life. God writes His law on our hearts. doesn't mean that we absorb them by osmosis, nor does it mean that they are some relative business that is within us and what we think and how we feel. But what it does mean is this. If it's ever going to take an effect in our life, it's got to be uh, perpetrated and placed there and solidified by the Spirit of God. John said, You have no need that any man teach you that self-same unction, that anointing. It'll teach you. He says this, But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. He says, the Lord's not meeting on the earth now like he did. That glory has been done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceeding glory. What did the Old Testament law do? It condemned. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It condemned. All it could do was wholehandedly condemn all of humanity as sinners and as laws. But that's not what, listen now, that's what the Old Testament, that's what the Old Covenant did. That's not what the New Covenant does. The New Covenant, we've already been made to realize we're sinners before we come to the New Covenant. Uh, We've been led there by the Old Covenant. It's been our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. But we come to the Lord and say, I can't do it. I'm unable to do it. You better just kill this old man and resurrect me in newness of life. And now the righteousness of Christ lives within. It says, for even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. Paul says this. Can I just put it in hillbilly language? He says, you thought that was glorious. You thought that was glorious. You thought it was glory when Moses came off the mountain. That wasn't glory compared to the glory that is now. He says this. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. By the way, did you see what the Lord did there? 
He says the Jews collectively have a veil over their head. They collectively are blind. But he says when it, the singular veil, when it is taken away. When it, that tells me this, that the Jews before the tribulation period are not going to collectively turn to the Lord. But it tells me that our Jewish friends can be saved by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says this, now the Lord is that spirit. Do you really get what he's saying there? Now, the Lord is that Spirit. He says this is the new covenant, and the new covenant is based upon the Spirit. He's saying the same one that was the brightness of His glory in the old covenant is the Spirit in the new covenant. He's not trying to confuse the Trinity. What he's saying is this. It was God that sat down on the mount in the Old Testament, and it's God that sits down on our hearts in the New Testament. The Spirit of God is just as much the Lord as the Lord Jesus Christ is. He's just, I know we think there's a hierarchy. I know there's a pecking order in our minds. And we got the Father up here, and He's really God, you know. And then we got the Son, and He's pretty much God. Then we got the Spirit, and He's kind of God. You didn't get that from the Bible. The, the Son of God is just as much God as God the Father, and the Spirit of God is just as much God as the Father and the Son. What the uh, Word of God is teaching us here is that the same God that sat down in thunder upon Sinai sits down in regeneration in the New Testament upon our hearts. He says, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. In other words, we're not like the Jews that can't look upon the glory. But there's liberty to look with us. We can look, we can know, we can understand something of the glory of the Lord. And then this truth, and I'm done. People are watch-checking now, so I'm done, I promise. But we all, with open face, but as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What he's saying is this. In the Old Testament, they could not behold because they were sinful. They were unrighteous. They were condemned. But the purpose of the New Testament and the New Covenant is not to condemn. It's to instill righteousness in a person through the working and outworking, not only the inworking, but the outworking of the Spirit of God. And so when we all with open face, as in a glass, James said, that uh, he that heareth the word of God and doeth it is as a man beholding his natural face in a glass. As we look into it from glory to glory, we are changed into that same image. You say, where's the presence of God in this day that we live in? He indwells the believer. Not the unbeliever, not everybody, but he indwells the believer. You say, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, could you imagine what the Gentiles must have thought about the children of Israel? Here they are being led around the desert with a fire by night and a cloud by day, and the Jehovah God of Israel is going before them into battle. You know what it did? It made lost people set up and take notice. Well, listen, now the Lord doesn't do that anymore. He indwells you and I. And people are watching us. I wonder if you're a good testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get worried. I wonder that about me most of the time too. I wonder if when people look at your life, they can say, hey, there's somebody that's different. There's somebody that has God in their life. There's somebody that the glory of the Lord shines from. I know a lost person wouldn't say it that way, but they'd still see it that way. I wonder if it's evident that the Lord 
has control of your life. 